We are starting a series of studies this evening through the Beatitudes, and we have called it as Live It Out, because this is what God expects of the believer. Now, we must remember that uh, these are not uh, qualities that if we have, then we will enter into God's kingdom. These are qualities which we should have if we are part of God's kingdom. These eight qualities, remember, can be lived out only by Christians, only by believers. A person cannot say, hey, look here, the Sermon on the Mount is good teaching and I'm wanting to follow after that. A person cannot follow the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, without becoming a believer. Jesus is not saying live like this in order to be saved, but rather Jesus is saying live like this because you are saved. Conduct must flow out of our character. Now, we must remember also that these are not commands that uh, a believer must fulfill to enter the kingdom. Rather, they are the results of coming into his kingdom. Now, the first, there are eight beatitudes. The first four of them are concerning our relationship with God. And the second four are on our relationship to our fellow men. And each of these uh, uh, beatitudes build up one on top of the other. In other words, it starts up with the first and there's a progression as it goes on till the end. There is a great unity, if you were to say, in all these beatitudes, or as somebody has called it, a beautiful attitudes. So if we have to look at this, uh, these Beatitudes and find out what God has to tell us during these days as we go through them one by one, for a study of anything, it is good to have, first of all, look at it from a wide-angle lens. Look at it from far to look at what are the things that you see. Then you can look at it from a micro micro you know cosmic angle you know microscope angle and then we can look at it also from a panoramic view so there are three things we can look at when you're looking at the wide angle lens we are looking at what matthew is saying in matthew chapter 4 and verse 23 which says jesus was teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease every kind of sickness. This is what we have Matthew recording before the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after chapter 8 and 9, in verse, nine of, verse 35 of chapter 9, the same phrase comes in, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The same verse. What is Matthew trying to tell us through this? When you're looking at this wide-angle lens, what Matthew saying these are actually two bookends, if you were to say. It starts with Jesus uh, in a teaching, then chapter 8 and 9 speaks about the miracles that he did. Uh, so these two things are together, and he's saying this is what we can follow from this whole uh, message of the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching as well as the application. Now, when you look at it from the microscope angle, the minute angle, we find each of the Beatitudes has two parts. There is a pronouncement of a blessing and a reason for the blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for this is the kingdom of heaven. There are these two that are there for each of these uh, beatitudes. We would also look at it, if you look at it minutely, that the first and the last reasons or the blessings is the same. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude and the last beatitude, the blessing is the same. So if you look at it in the opening and the closing, Jesus is telling his disciples that the blessings from the first and to the last is all about God's kingdom, where God's kingdom is reigning. Also, if you look at the you know, microscope angle, you will find that the first and the last Beatitudes are all in the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, whereas the rest of them in the middle are speaking about the future tense. You know, they shall in the future. Thirdly, when you're looking at from a panoramic view, we also understand where and to whom Jesus was speaking. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, the scene opens with Jesus sitting down on a mountainside to instruct his disciples. And if you notice in Luke's rendering of this in chapter 6, you know, there's a smaller version of that. There it mentions that Jesus was specifically teaching to the 12 disciples. However, at the end of Luke's record, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 28, we find the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. In other words, if you look at it from a panoramic view, you'll find that Jesus is teaching these to the 12 disciples and saying, these are the attitudes that must be there. If you are a part of the kingdom, this is how you should be. And the people around are sitting and listening. And when they are listening to that, they are amazed. And this is something that we must recognize. When we are going through this study, if we are willing to apply the truths of these Beatitudes into our lives, the people who are around us watching our lives, their lives will definitely be touched and they will say, hey, this is something new. This is something different. They would also be amazed. Secondly, let's look at why should we study the Beatitudes? Why should we study the Beatitudes? Why did we pick up the Beatitudes to study? There are so many things that we could have done. Why should we study the Beatitudes? Four reasons. Number one, it shows us the absolute necessity of the new birth. That's the first important thing. The Beatitudes does not show us enough about how we can enter into God's kingdom. The Beatitudes is actually showing us that if we don't enter into God's kingdom, no matter how hard we try, we will not really be able to do anything that pleases God. There are some people who say that even though Jesus did, you know, if it was proved that Jesus did not exist, the Sermon on the Mount will still be very meaningful to them. They say we are living our lives by what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But remember, no individual can live up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount on their own. Either that means that they have never read it properly and understood what it is teaching, or they are lying. Because the Bible tells us very clearly over here that the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes included does not encourage righteousness in an individual apart from Christ. Remember the first Beatitudes is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we look at that particular Beatitude, we'll understand there's the starting point for a person to be a part of God's kingdom, to understand 
their poverty in the spirit. Secondly, like all scripture, it points out to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the Beatitudes, it gives us a total picture of the character of the one who gave his life for us and is expecting us to live like him. Jesus said, this is the command that I have given you. This is how you should follow. And he says, this I have gone before and this is what you should emulate in your life. So as we you know, go through this study, it will definitely bring us to uh, a greater understanding of who Jesus is and wanting us to follow after him. Thirdly, here it very clearly says that it in, indicates the way to blessing for Christians. How can a Christian be happy? What does it mean to be happy? Not according to the world standards, but according to Christ's standards. What are the principles that God tells us that how we can be happy in this world? And remember, every individual wants to be happy. They are doing so many things in, our, in the world today just so that they can have a blessing. They run after this and run after that. They want to be happy. But these Beatitudes teach us very specifically principles of how we can be happy as Christians. And finally, fourthly, it shows us the way to please our Heavenly Father. It shows us the way to please our Heavenly Father. Once we are a part of his family, it is, should be a desire and a privilege to please him. In other words, if we want to get into a stronger relationship with anybody, we would like to do everything you know, that the other person would want so that with it, you know, the relationship is built up. And that is why when we are studying these you know, Beatitudes, we'll be able to understand what's the heart of God. What does God really want? And that will motivate us to say, Lord, if this is your desire, grant me your you know, help to make sure that I please you in every way. Thirdly, let's look at the word blessed. Now, a lot of confusion has happened because people have not really understood this meaning of the word blessed. Someone once said to Hannah Whittall Smith, I wonder if you've heard this name. She is the author of the very successful book, The Christian Secret to a Happy Life. And when they saw this book, The Christian Secret to a Happy Life, this was their remark. They said, you Christians seem to have a religion that makes you miserable. You are like a man with a headache. He does not want to get rid of his head, but it hurts him to keep it. You cannot expect outsiders, you cannot expect outsiders to seek very earnestly for anything so uncomfortable. You are a man, you are like a man with a headache. Now, when the world looks at us as believers, what would they say? Would they be motivated to follow the one whom we believe in? Or they would say, hey, your life is miserable. Now, you are not really having any joy and fun in your life. Is that what the world will say? Now, when you're looking at this phrase, you know, blessed, okay? Let's look at, you know, the first meaning of this word blessed. The word blessed has an interesting background to the English language. In the days of the origin of the English language where Anglo-Saxon was used, there were more than 30 forms of the old English word for blessed. And the old English noun form was the word blood, meaning blood. 
and that is how the word blessed came in. So when you're thinking of this, what does it mean? The English language referred to blessed as, as something that was set apart for God by a blood ritual. And the word was then referred to as consecration. This is why when we are speaking about the communion service, if you notice, people would often call it as a blessed sacrament. What does it mean? It is something that has been consecrated. It is something that has been set apart. Keep that in mind when you're thinking about the word blessed. Secondly, we must remember that the word blessed in its earliest forms then moved further to the Latin form, the Latin form of the word benediceri which means basically to speak well of, or of something or someone. And that's where from the Greek word, eulogion, from which we get the English word, eulogy. Eulogy basically means to speak well of. And so when you're speaking about, you know, blessed, it's saying to speak well of. Okay. So when we're saying, for example, Jesus told us to love our enemies and bless them that curse us, what did he mean? He said, speak well of those who do not speak well of us. Or when we say in our prayers, Lord, we will ask you to bless somebody. What are we really meaning by the word bless? It means basically, Lord, we are speaking well of that person. Or when we're saying, Lord, we bless you. What does it mean? It means basically, Lord, we are speaking well of you. So we speak about the character of that individual. We speak about the character of God. That's what the word blessed really means. Third meaning of the word blessed comes from the word bliss. Now, as time went on again, you know, there was another English word bliss, which means happy or joyful. So these are the three meanings of the word blessed. So when you speak about blessed are the pure in heart, what it is basically speaking about is, you know, is to speak well. Who will speak well? God will speak well of an individual who is living like this. God will have his approval upon them. God will have set apart this person like he would have said of Job. Here's a person you know, whom I know will never let me down. Or when you're speaking about the word blessed, we are speaking about uh, you know, uh, the joy and the happiness that comes. So it's a mixture of these three meanings. And that is what the understanding of the word blessed is. The Greek word that is used there, makarios, doesn't even apply to human emotions. It is a statement of how God views people who live in a certain way. So the root idea of blessed is actually approved by God. When God says, I've set this person apart, I've approved him. Here's a person who is full of joy. Max Lucado catches this idea beautifully in his book on the Beatitudes, which is called The Applause of Heaven. If you find time, read that book. And there he uh, translates, if you were to say, these Beatitudes, keeping this in mind from God's perspective. And this is how he puts it across. He says, God applauds the poor in spirit. He cheers the mourners. He favors the meek. He smiles upon the hungry. He honors the merciful. He welcomes the pure in heart. He claps for the peacemakers. He rises to greet the persecuted. Think for a moment. If you were to look at the Beatitudes from this manner, from this side of how God views it, how much would you crave 
God clapping for you? How much would you want to see the smile of God rather than our own desires and self-centered aspirations? Do you desire the applause of God more than the approval of friends? Do you want the blessing of God more than anything else? You can have it, but first you must please him in everything that he wants you to do. And that's what this Beatitudes is all about. Seeking God's blessing and approval or desiring that in our lives. And the question before we start these studies one by one, the question we must ask ourselves is, do we really want his approval more than anything else? Or do we just want to be happy as the world will define happiness? But Beatitudes is speaking about seeking God's uh, approval. Fourthly, we find that the Beatitudes are a portrait of Christ. We cannot go far in our study of the Beatitudes without realizing that by its own definition, Jesus was himself most happy. Jesus was the most happy individual. Now, in his study on the Beatitudes, Billy Graham has written, if by happiness we mean serenity, confidence, contentment, peace, joy, and soul satisfaction, then Jesus was supremely happy. We never read, of course, of his laughing, though I'm sure he did. He was not given to pleasure-seeking, hilariousness, jokes, or poking fun at others. His happiness was not dependent on outward circumstances. He did not have an outward stimulus to make him happy. He had learned a secret that allowed him to live above the circumstances of light and fear of the future. Did Jesus have the approval of God on his life? Yes. Remember, when he was here on earth, the sound from the Father in heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the Beatitudes are a portrait of Christ. And if we have to find true happiness, we must seek it not in the world's way, but we must seek it as it has been outlined by Jesus in these Beatitudes. So let's move on and understand what does it mean to be poor in spirit. I hope by now your understanding of the Beatitudes has changed a little, not just to feel happy to have the good feeling, but to understand that the Beatitudes are speaking about God's approval, God's applause. And if this is what you really desire, then as you go step by step, it's a progression from one beatitude to the other. And as you apply these truths in our lives, we will definitely be assured of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So the first one is speaking about the riches of poverty. The riches of poverty. It may sound like a contradiction. How can a person be rich as well as poor? But that's what the first beatitude is speaking there's an order, remember I mentioned, in these Beatitudes. Jesus does not mix them up. There's an order. It starts from here and goes on right till the end about the final aspect of the persecution that will take place. But there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not pure in spirit, who is not poor in spirit. In other words, this is the starting point for a person who wants to enter into God's kingdom. Now, this by itself, you know, would condemn every person who thinks that, you know, by themselves, by carrying it out, all these good principles, 
they would be able to enter God's kingdom. There are a lot of people, by the way, the secular people, non-Christian world, as well as sometimes the Christian world, who think that by following these uh, principles in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes, they can enter into God's kingdom. No. The starting point, if you notice, to enter into God's kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, the first thing we must realize is, as you look at that mountain which you are told you must ascend, is that the understanding, hey, I cannot do it on my own. If in case a person says, I can get into the kingdom of heaven by doing this, 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 the first beatitude itself, they say, that is not possible. J.C. Ryle put it across this way. A right knowledge of the way to heaven is to feel that we are on the way to hell. A right knowledge of the way to heaven is to feel that we are on the way to hell. To be sensible of our corruption and abhor our own transgressions is the first symptom of spiritual health. We must know the depth and the malignancy of our disease in order to appreciate the great physician. The first step is understanding that we are a sinner. Okay. Now let's break that down a little further. Now what it does it not mean? What does being poor in spirit not mean? Number one, it is not speaking about material poverty. Now, Luke's rendering says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. There are some people who speak it across this way and say, so if a person is poor, only then he can enter God's kingdom. Rich people can't enter God's kingdom. But that is not what is being spoken of. It is not speaking about the opposite of being materially rich. To be poor in spirit is the emphasis, is to be poor in the inner man, not in the outward circumstances. It is to recognize one's own spiritual poverty before God. So it is not material poverty. Secondly, it is not also being poor-spirited. Poor-spirited is a person who feels he is of no value whatsoever. They consider themselves to be zero. They say, I cannot do this. They lack in vitality. They lack in, in having any spiritual uh, abilities, as it were. They lack a drive. They lack enthusiasm for life. Now, the Bible is not saying such people the people who look down on themselves, who says, who am I? I can't do anything. I'm just zeros. That God will say, yes, you can be a part of God's kingdom. No, it's not a person who is poor-spirited. Thirdly, shyness is not poverty in spirit. Shyness is not poverty in spirit. Some people are shy and retiring by nature, but that is not the same as being poor in spirit. Because it is possible for an introvert to be proud and an extrovert to be, uh, it is possible to be an introvert and proud or to be an extrovert and also be proud. Poor in spirit does not mean shyness. Okay. Fourthly, mock humility is also not poor in spirit. Those of you who have read Charles Dickens, David Copperfield will know about Uriah Heep, who kept reminding people that he was a very humble person. Okay. Now, people go around saying, I'm a very humble person. Technically, they are not really humble, isn't it? The great British preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, tells of a meeting of uh, where he met such a person on one of his preaching missions. When he arrived at the railway station, the man asked for the minister's bag and, in fact, almost ripped it from his hand, saying, 
I am a deacon in the church where you are preaching tomorrow. You know, I'm a mere nobody, a very unimportant man. Really, I do not count. I'm not a great man in the church. I'm just one of those men who carry the bag of the preacher. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed and says he was very anxious that I should know what a humble man he was. You know? But that is not being poor in spirit, isn't it? To be proud that you are humble is not being poor in spirit. Remember when Moses, when God called Moses, and I, he told God, God, I cannot do this. There are a lot of people who say that. When you ask them to do something, maybe you know they are doing well in that particular thing as well. You ask them to do a particular project in church or the fellowship, they say, no, I can't. I'm just a nobody, and even though they are doing a good job of it. Why are they saying, I'm a nobody, I can't do anything? They are actually wanting in their heart of hearts some praise. They are looking for somebody who will say, hey, you did a good job. Now, that is also mock humility. Okay. Now, this is what it is not. What it is? What does it actually mean to be poor in spirit? Now, the Greek word that is used here for poor will provide some insight into this. Okay? It comes from a verbal root word, which means to cover and cringe like a beggar. To cover and cringe like a beggar. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your true condition before God. In other words, to say, you can translate this as, blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. Now, in order to understand this a little more closer, there are two words in Greek that are used for poor. Now, the first word for an ordinary poverty is penicross, and it's use of the widow who dropped her two mites in the offering box. Okay, Here was a poor widow. Okay, Now, that is one poverty, but she had something. But that's not the word that is used here. The word that is used here is tokos, which means primarily somebody who is totally dependent on somebody else. Okay? Not just a poor person, but somebody who is a beggar, somebody who does not have anything at all. And that is the understanding of being poor in spirit. So the bedrock or the foundation of poverty is not to say, you know, I can do it. The starting point to say, I cannot do it. This is the type of life you were expected to live, God. I cannot do it. I'm not saying somehow I'll try to do it. No, I cannot do it. The admission of that to say, I cannot do it, then the Lord says, Hey, you have the right criteria, you have the right qualification. Because on your own, you cannot do it. So to be poor in spirit actually means to say, Lord, I am bankrupt. I don't have any capacity within myself. How often as individuals, we think we have a lot of capacity. We think we can do it. We think we can live the Christian life on our own. No, it is not possible. It is God and God alone who grants us his grace to enter into his kingdom and also to live for him. Too many people, I like those in the Laodicean church, isn't it? Where the Lord says, you are rich, you have acquired wealth, and you think you don't need a thing, but... You don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, we must ask ourselves as we think about this particular beatitude, what is our understanding when we think about entrance into God's kingdom? Do you think we can get in without good works? Do you think we can somehow manage to squeeze into his kingdom? 
how do we recognize, Lord, I cannot do it. I cannot do it on my own. No matter how hard I try, I will never be able to do it. It is only you and you alone. When it's an attitude of being a beggar. Martin Luther acknowledged this truth. And they say after his death, his friends found a scrap of paper in his pocket in which the great reformer had written both in Latin and in German these words. And the words in English mean, this is true. We are all beggars. This is true. We are all beggars. Remember Martin Luther from his background, the church was saying, if you do this, buy these indulgences, then you will get entrance into heaven. And Martin Luther recognized, no, the just shall live by faith and by faith alone. And this thought was so ingrained into him to say, we are all beggars. We do not deserve salvation, but it is God who has saved us. It is that attitude that will enable us to get into God's kingdom. To put it across in another way, to preach the standards of the Sermon on the Mount to those people who are unbelievers you know, is uh, like preaching to animals, if you were to say, that hey, the lion and the lamb has to lie together. Remember the Bible speaks about it, isn't it? In the kingdom, you know, the lion and the lamb will lie together. Now, but for that to happen, the lion and the lamb will lie together. That happens only when the transformation takes place. That happens only when you know, sin is removed. And as a result in God's kingdom, there is no wild animals in that sense. You know? There is sin of freedom and there is friendship in everywhere. And that is the same understanding here. If we want to think that we can enter into God's kingdom without that transformation, it's not going to be possible. The transformation is the first step. And the meaning of that transformation is to be poor in spirit. Now, we must also understand that it is possible for a person to create a feeling of I'm poor in spirit in comparison with somebody else. Now, a person may say, look, I don't get that angry as you know, the other person gets angry, so I'm better than that person. Or a person may say, look here, you know, I never get angry. That person you know, gets angry. So as a result, I'm better than that other individual. So I can enter into, you know, into heaven. That is not possible at all. It was C.S. Lewis who made this statement. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than somebody else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. In other words, if at any point of time, if in case we feel I'm better than the other individual, it is not God who is speaking to us, but it is Satan, Satan trying to make us complacent in our walk with God. We must remember the first step is to understand, to be poor in spirit, to acknowledge, Lord, without you, I cannot do it. It is to have that beggarly attitude. We must realize that the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but it is my badness. It is not my merit, but it is my misery. It is not my standing, but it is my falling. And that is the starting point. Okay? So ask yourself, do you really have this attitude in our hearts? It starts with the attitude, remember. These are all beautiful attitudes. The attitude that says, Lord, I need you every day. I cannot do it on my own. Let's move further. What are the consequences of being poor in spirit? What are the consequences 
of being poor in spirit. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the word that is used there for theirs is a very emphatic word, a word which says theirs and theirs alone. And when you're speaking about the word is, theirs is, it is in the present tense. It is in the sense of, and this is a certain truth. This is a fact. If you're poor in spirit, make sure that you will definitely be a part of God's kingdom. Make sure that this will happen now and in the future as well. Pride makes slaves out of all whom it possesses. Not so with poverty of spirit. If we are full of ourselves, we are not able to get into God's kingdom. But once we have emptied ourselves and say, hey, I cannot do it, then we find we receive God's kingdom. So let's look at the consequences. Number one, it brings a blessing. It brings a blessing. Question we must ask ourselves is, how can we, how can humility bring blessing to us? When we are living in this cutthroat world, how can we be happy? How can a person who has this attitude to be poor in spirit enjoy happiness in this world? Remember in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, speaking about Jesus, it speaks about how he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as a result, the scripture tells us, the Lord lifted him up and made him seat and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is the assurance that God gives to us. If we are willing to humble ourselves before him, then he will lift us up. There's is, it's a guarantee. If this is your attitude, God says you will receive the kingdom. Now, secondly, it makes us kings. When you speak about in a, king, in a kingdom, it speaks about the fact that there is a king over there. Now, who is the king? Jesus himself is the king. But it also helps us to understand that we become co-heirs together with him. We control by being controlled. We control by being controlled. Jesus said, all authority is given to me, so you go in that authority. That's the blessing of God. As we give ourselves to be controlled by God, then we in turn, under that authority of God, we are able to function here in this world. Remember, pride always weakens us because pride cuts us off from fellowship with God. Remember, Peter was at his weakest when in pride he took a sword and tried to defend Jesus by cutting off Malchus's head. He thought he would protect Jesus. And that was his weakest point. But, and also later on when he said, and I will never deny you. And then he denied him three times as Jesus had told him. But his strongest point was when he wept bitterly, when he humbled himself, and when he submitted himself back to the Lord again. Pride brings us down. Pride makes us weak, but when we are poor in spirit, it gives us authority. The world believes that authority comes with size and ability and self-promotion. But we must remember that the Christian recognizes true authority comes because of poverty of spirit. We reign as kings because we submit as servants. That's the biblical pattern. It's an upside-down world. But that's what God promises us. Thirdly, it gives us liberty. It gives us liberty. Pride always makes a slave of a person, whereas humility sets that person free. Pride 
makes a slave of a person, whereas humility sets that person free. Remember when Moses went up to meet up with Pharaoh, initially he thought he would be the deliverer and he tried killing that Egyptian and hiding him. But then later on, once God actually called him to himself and called him to say, you're the one whom I'm sending to go before Pharaoh, he was not afraid to go before Pharaoh because he was sure that God will be with him. He was sure that he was not living to promote himself as it was earlier, so he had to go and hide. But now he knew that this was what God had told him to do. And as a result, he was willing to go with boldness. Also, when you look at King Saul, Saul, when he started out as a king, he was humble before God. When he was to be anointed, he was not even to be found because he was hiding among the haystacks. But later on what happens, and it gets into his head and thinks that he is the king, he is the boss, and he begins to do things on his own. And as a result, when God's judgment comes upon him, on one side he says, I have sinned. But on the other hand, he also tells uh, uh, Samuel, please make it appear before the people that you, know, you have not uh, abandoned me. There is still that pride that is left in him. His pride make, made him a slave. He was not the king of Israel. Actually, Israel was king over him. Oftentimes, we allow the world to become king over us. We allow the world to you know, run our lives. But one who is poor in spirit is a free individual. It gives him that liberty. He is no longer a slave to what people are expecting. He is set free from people and circumstances and things. Fourthly, it gives us adequacy. It gives us adequacy. Remember, when we are low enough, then God can trust us with a throne as well as a scepter. It is people who are dependent on material things who cannot reign in life because they are possessed by the things they possess. Things are the ones that are controlling them. They are never satisfied with the things that they have. Remember, I spoke to you about King Saul. Started off with a, being a humble servant. God gave him a kingdom. But then Saul began to throw his weight around and run his own things, his own way. So he lost his kingdom. He was no longer adequate. But how did David get his kingdom? He began by being a nobody. One who was anointed by, the, uh, by Samuel to be the king, but one who had to be running and running and running. Till he waited for that time. And as he waited, the scripture tells us God gave him that position. It gives us adequacy. So if we are, you know, have that attitude of being poor in spirit, in due time, God will lift us up. In due time, God will lift us up. The world is saying, blessed are the strong, for they shall rule the earth. Blessed are the mighty, for they shall rise to power. Blessed are the rich, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the influential, for they shall be favored. Blessed are the popular, for they shall be loved. Blessed are the gifted, for they shall be followed. Blessed are the beautiful, for they shall be admired. But Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the basic fundamental quality of the spiritual life. This is where discipleship begins, and this is the key that unlocks the door of heaven so that we can enter into God's kingdom. Sixthly, or seventhly, how can we cultivate 
this being poor of the spirit? How can you maintain this constantly in our lives? If this is what God expects, if this is the first step, how can we make sure that that is continuously maintained in our lives? Number one, accept God's estimate of yourself. Accept God's estimate of yourself. What is God's estimate? The scripture is very clear. It starts off by saying we have all fallen short of God's glory. We all have sinned, isn't it? That's the starting point. But also Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 tells, For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. The right estimate of ourselves is important. Not to think too high about ourselves, not to think too low about ourselves. To recognize we are all sinners saved by grace. If it was not for the grace of God, where will we be? That continuous acknowledgement of that is what we need to maintain. At times after we have come to know the Lord, after some time we think it's because of our good works and good deeds that we can keep ourselves going. It's like we think that we have built up a momentum now, so it will keep going for some time. No, we have to continuously accept God's estimate of ourselves to say, if it was not for God's grace, where would we be today? Secondly, yield yourself to God daily. Yield yourself to God daily. John chapter 15 and verse 5 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is God's word that nourishes us. It is God's word that helps us to keep the right focus. If we do not allow God's word to be a part of our lives daily, we would allow the thinking patterns of the world to creep into us. Thinking patterns of the world is what push yourself up, you know, be somebody. But as we read God's word daily, as we yield it to the principles of God's word, we recognize we are living in an upside down world. And as we respond to what God is asking us to do in his word, then we will find that we'll continue to maintain that attitude of being poor in spirit. Thirdly, we must focus on Christ and his blessings. We must focus on Christ and his blessings. We must remember, it is not the badness of people that leads to repentance, but it is the goodness of God. That is what Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us. Now, sometimes we can you know, keep dissecting our sins and think about, you know, how bad we are, but that will not enable us to be poor in spirit. As somebody has said, if you conduct too many spiritual autopsies, you may bleed to death. Now, there's nothing wrong with an honest self-examination, but the focus has to be not just on ourselves, but the focus has to be on Christ and Christ alone. As Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher, of our faith, the author and the finisher of our faith. Think, for example, Peter, when he was out in the boat fishing all night, they have tried to fish, nothing has been got. When Jesus commanded Peter to launch out into the deep, initially protested because he was a professional fisherman, but he obeyed. And as a result of that, there was a big catch of fish. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, when Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
Remember, it was not the night of failure that drove Peter to his knees, but the great success that Jesus gave to him. Anybody can say, I am sinful when he or she has failed. But it takes an honest, humble heart to say this when he or she has succeeded it. Now, it is the goodness of God that led Peter to repentance. Similarly, even in our lives, the more we are able to focus on God's goodness, it would enable us to recognize on who we are in the light of how good God is, and that would enable us to keep ourselves in right perspective. Fourthly, look for opportunities to serve others. Look for opportunities to serve others. The proud look for others to serve them, whereas the humble look for ways to serve others. Consider yourselves better than others. That's what Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 tells us. The more we are able to think about the other person than ourselves, that will keep us you know, humble. That would not make us puffed up. The question then we must ask ourselves is, have you experienced the true poverty of spirit? Can you say with the songwriter, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Is this your heart's cry? Or are you a church attender without Christ? Are you an unregenerate evangelical? Are you a Christless Christian? If so, Hear this message even this evening. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Charles Spurgeon expresses it, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. Pause for a moment and think about this first beatitude. What is your attitude in this area? Are you poor? Do you have this recognition that you can't do it on your own. Do you depend upon him daily? Do you feed yourself with the truth of God's word daily so that it keeps you on track, that your mind is not filled with the world's standards of what is right and wrong and what is spiritual and non-spiritual? Ask God to give you his strength daily to be poor in spirit. 